This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've practiced in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years. And I'm so glad you're here. I started self-work because I wanted to reach out, try to address the stigma of mental health treatment, let you listen to a real-life psychologist, I guess. But I wanted to reach those of you who are already quite comfortable with psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're already in therapy. Also, to those of you who may have just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or some other kind of mental health condition, and you'd like some answers. But I also wanted to reach those of you who might never consider going to a therapist, but you're just curious enough to listen to a podcast. For today's episode, I'm delighted to say that we have a sponsor, BetterHelp, which is the number one online therapeutic program, and they have a special offer for you today, which I'll talk about a little later in the episode. I cannot believe this is my 180th podcast. Oh my goodness. So I was thinking about trying to get really cute and do an episode called do it a 180 or something like that. But I got curious about something and I was looking it up. I found a whole bunch of really cool stuff about tears. Now, I've watched hundreds of people cry over the years. We all know that some will do everything in their power to stop it while some allow them to come quite easily. Others fight them, but then lose the battle. Some cry a lot, others very little. But I guess I started thinking about this because I had an experience with a patient this week You know, it's a very moving moment when you see and feel someone break through some barrier they had up and allow themselves to connect with sadness or a pain that they've silently carried for far too long. In fact, it's quite an honor to be allowed into that emotional space with them. So that experience and others throughout my career made me think about the capacity for emotional intelligence, not IQ, that's mental intelligence. No, I'm talking about emotional intelligence. So today we're going to talk first about crying, because I found out some pretty cool things about it. But then we'll define EI, as it's called, or emotional intelligence, and discuss that so you'll know how positive psychologists talk about it and why they think it's so important. And actually, the good news, you can grow your emotional intelligence. You can practice and gain more of it. The listener email for today is all about trying to help a parent, or it could be a friend or loved one, fight against loneliness and depression. But right now, let's settle back and talk about crying and emotional intelligence. What do they have in common? As I said in the intro, today's episode was really sparked or triggered by a session I had with someone this past week where I watched them move into an emotional space that I'd never seen them risk feeling. As I said, it's quite an honor to be a part of that dynamic, and you could see how much it meant to him to risk that behavior and to connect with those emotions. Frankly, I don't know how long it had been since he'd ever let himself cry. You know, Charles Darwin, the scientist who came up with the theory of evolution, once declared emotional tears purposeless. Now we're quite sure that crying serves several purposes and are a reaction to various things in our lives. Research shows that women do it more than men. 
there's a nature-nurture debate, how much of that is caused by a natural genetic difference and how much of that difference is culturally imbued, shall we say. But it's a fact that for every 50 crying episodes that women do, men only average 10. Now, of course, tears also have a non-emotional function. Interestingly enough, both your emotional tears and your non-emotional tears come from the same place in your body, what's called your lacrimal gland, which is found in between your eyeball and your eyelid. I found a really funny and well-written article by Dr. Nick Knight. I thought I'd share some things with you. And he says, Crying can be scientifically defined as the shedding of your tears in response to an emotional state. Very different from lacrimation, which is the non-emotional shedding of tears. With that said, your plumbing apparatus that makes your tears is all the same. So before I dazzle you with the fact that we have more than one type of tear, let us explore the science of tear production and how it links to the emotional center of your brain. I'm still quoting. When a tear is produced from the lacrimal gland that sits in between your eyeball and eyelid, you spontaneously blink, spreading the tear as a film across your eye. Your tear then has two fates. Firstly, it can drain off down the lacrimal punctum, like the sink plug in your kitchen, subsequently draining through your nose, hence that's why your nose runs when you cry. And of course, you may be having a really good sob, and so your lacrimal drainage system simply cannot deal with the volume of tears. The resultant excess fluid now cascades over your eyelids and down your cheeks. Again, his whole article is really funny. I'll have the link in the show notes. In fact, I was told in a fairly recent trip to my ophthalmologist that I destroyed about 80% of my own tear ducts due to wearing contact lenses and, of course, aging. I was shocked no one had told me about that issue, and so I had some procedure that's supposed to help the ducts that are left do the best job they can do. It's not that I can't cry. I can but I was told there wasn't a way to coax my tear ducts back into working properly. I didn't like that. In reviewing the lit for this piece, I learned also that there are three kinds of tears, basal, reflex, and psychic. Basal are the worker tears, as Dr. Knight calls them. They keep your cornea lubricated so your eyes have sufficient coverage and don't dry out. The second type of tear, your reflex tears, happen when you cut up an onion or get something in your eye. They're coming to the rescue to wash your eyes out. But the third type of tear are the ones that are connected with your emotions, actually pain of any kind. Now, here's a stunner. I'm quoting an article by Nicole Fisher in Forbes magazine, and I'd heard this before. Although the brain does not process emotional pain and physical pain identically, research on neural pathways suggests there is substantial overlap between the experience of physical and social pain. Actually, what she's saying is that our brain processes emotional pain and physical pain in a similar way. But keep on quoting. Further, it seems the impact may not be limited to just how the brain processes the emotions and pain associated with rejection, but that real heartbreak can actually take a toll on your IQ. Exposure to rejection led participants in a study done by Case Western Reserve University to have an immediate drop in reasoning by 30% and in IQ by 25%. Thus, a broken heart really does hurt, and it really can take a while to heal. I think this information is incredible, that our own minds have similar responses to emotional and physical pain. Now, I stopped there in my search, but I would really love to know more about what parts of the brain light up for both emotional and physical. That would be fascinating. 
One thing Dr. Knight has to say about this is he states that psychic tears even contain a natural painkiller called leucine enkephalin, which helps us to understand why we actually feel better after a cry, or as many people tell me, they feel relief, even if they don't cry often. Now, your brain has something to do with your tearing up as well. The part of your brain that deals with your emotions, termed the limbic system, and more specifically the hypothalamus, uses neurotransmitters to quote-unquote control crying. So what happens is your emotions trigger your brain to respond, and then your brain shoots off a message to cry. All of this makes me believe something I say a lot is even more true, that tears aren't about weakness. They're about intensity, and your brain picks that up. But now, why did I entitle this episode as about emotional intelligence as well, when all I've talked about so far are tears? Because to me, accessibility to all your emotions is so important. And if you can access all of them, it's certainly tied in with emotional intelligence. There are four pillars that the concept of emotional intelligence sits on. And next, we'll talk about just what they are. But first, a quick offer from BetterHelp, a new sponsor of SelfWork, whom I'm delighted to have on board. I was delighted when BetterHelp reached out to me as a potential sponsor. What exactly is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is an online therapy service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not really self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I also tried this out, of course, for my self-work listeners, and I was very impressed with the two counselors I tried. There's a broad range of expertise, and you're actually matched to the therapist that they believe will work best for you. You can have video sessions, phone sessions, you can text, and actually it's much less expensive than quote-unquote normal therapy. And BetterHelp is rated number one by so many platforms that specialize in trying to help you find the best therapy online for you. There's a special offer for self-work listeners where you get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. You can begin getting help today, and I highly recommend it. So give it a try. So first, what is emotional intelligence? In an article from Positive Psychology, here's the definition. The term emotional intelligence, first coined by psychologists Mayer and Salovey, or Salovey, in 1990, refers to one's capacity to perceive, process, and regulate emotional information accurately and effectively, both within oneself and in others, to use this information to guide one's thinking and actions and to influence those of others. Whew, quite a statement. Now, Obviously, the ability to cry doesn't necessarily mean that you have a high degree of emotional intelligence, but it does indicate that you have at least access to more spontaneous or deeper feelings, be they joy or sadness or pain. And when you can risk that practice, like my patient did, we'll talk in a minute about how that can lead to a greater ability to actually display or have emotional intelligence. As I said in the intro, the great thing is that EI, as it's termed, can be practiced and learned. Right now, they don't believe that IQ can be, but who knows? In fact, as I start to think about my training in graduate school, that's really what a lot of it was. We were trained in emotional intelligence. 
not just verbal emotional intelligence, but nonverbal as well. What does somebody's body language suggest to you or their word use? It's a fascinating field. Now, we might think that being high in emotional intelligence would always be a good thing, but it actually has a darker side. An article in The Atlantic says, Social scientists have begun to document this dark side of emotional intelligence. For example, in research led by University of Cambridge professor, when a leader gives an inspiring speech filled with emotion, the audience was less likely to scrutinize the message and remembered less of the content, although they believed they remembered more of it. The authors called this the awestruck effect, but it might just as easily be described as the dumbstruck effect. One observer said that Hitler's persuasive impact came from his ability to strategically express emotions. He would tear open his heart, and these emotions affected his followers to the point they would stop thinking critically and just emote. Martin Luther King was someone who used emotional intelligence very well. And you can probably remember speakers that you were very moved by. So what exactly are we talking about when we say emotional intelligence? First, it's self-awareness, emotional self-awareness, the ability to know yourself and understand your feelings, to be accurate in that self-assessment, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and then to have faith in yourself and being willing to put yourself forward or have self-confidence. Self-awareness is both emotional, accurate, and involves self-confidence. Now, you can easily hear how these three depend on having access to your full palette of emotions and feelings. If I'm not aware of my strengths as well as my vulnerabilities, there's no way I can accurately assess what I'll do well and what I'll struggle with. Even if your vulnerability is not knowing how something makes you feel, then at least you're being accurate in your assessment. And as I've said, the wonderful news is that you can learn to identify your feelings. So the first pillar is self-awareness. The second is called self-management. As I read the next five parts of self-management, I had to think about the concept of perfectly hidden depression that I've been writing about. So much of what those folks struggle with is within this category. The thing to note about self-management is how these skills often get labeled mental skills, but they have a huge emotional component. There are six of them. Let's go through them quickly. Emotional self-control, where you control your feelings and decide whether or not expressing them is going to be appropriate. Self-management involves achievement, being very goal-oriented, and being able to work toward your goal. That's actually the episode I did last time on resilience talked about this very thing. The third aspect of self-management is initiative, taking initiative, being self-motivated, and having the ability to keep working despite setbacks. What that has to do with emotions is you become aware of how those setbacks are making you feel, but you don't allow those struggles to destroy your overall goal. Right now, we are all experiencing setbacks, and so how do you keep your motivation? The fourth part of self-management is transparency, being honest and open, interacting with integrity, and being trustworthy. Actually, I fear this is getting lost a little bit these days. Integrity and honesty is becoming more rare. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid I'm right. The fifth one is adaptability, where again you're showing resilience and the ability to change course when necessary. This is flexibility. And I think people are able to change course when necessary if they grieve first. 
what they'd hoped for, you sort of have to grieve plan A, then move on to plan B or plan C or plan X. The last part of self-management is optimism, hoping for the best and preparing for success, not rigidly counting your blessings or what's called rigid positivity, but an awareness that the glass is half full and half empty by definition. You'll probably realize if you've been listening to self-work for a while that we talk a lot about these self-management skills. It's kind of neat that this whole rubric bonds them together as self-management skills. So the third part of emotional intelligence is called social awareness. This is empathy, a service orientation or being helpful and contributing to a group effort, displaying good listening skills, and organizational awareness. The ability to explain yourself well and be aware of how you're being understood as well as sensing whether your audience is actually getting it. Now, we all know people like this. When people who have a great deal of social awareness are in a meeting, it just goes better. They may not even be in charge of the meeting, but somehow what they say or what they notice about the group interaction helps things go well. And everyone leaves the meeting feeling better because people felt counted and understood. So empathy, being helpful, having a service orientation, and being able to explain yourself well, all of that has an emotional component, not just a mental component. In some ways, you're getting your ego out of the way when you're a good listener because you're not listening so you can say the next thing. You're listening in order to be aware of what's going on around you. It's a huge skill. And the fourth part of emotional intelligence, so there's been self-awareness, self-management, and social awareness, is what's called relationship management. Now, we've probably all known someone whose mind was really incredible and they could solve any problem you put in front of them, but they didn't inspire you. Either they always had to be right or they hadn't a clue how to lead. He didn't know how to manage his relationships with other people. I remember a guy I worked with whose work expectations of himself and the people who reported to him were extremely high but also rigid. As a child, he'd been screamed at for years that he'd never amount to anything. So as an adult, he had to be in charge. He was the kind of supervisor who demanded schedules be kept, that people sacrifice their family time for work time. Two divorces and three kids later, he came to see me. After he worked on his own vulnerability and even risked crying one time in my office, he completely changed the way he led because he could now recognize for himself his own strengths and struggles, and he wanted to build a relationship with others where they could do the same. His whole attitude changed. He looked to bring out the potential in others instead of harshly demanding things go his way. And guess what? Rather than people asking to get off his team, he had people lined up who wanted to be on it. All because he'd become so much more aware of the entirety of himself, and it led him to manage his own relationships with others quite differently. Now, there are six noted parts of relationship management. I'm really not going to go into them. There's inspiration, articulation or having influence in a persuasive way, conflict management, recognizing and supporting the need for change and making it happen, wanting to develop others and build their skills and knowledge, not all be about you, and then teamwork and collaboration where you work with others in an effective manner. So that's emotional intelligence. 
And what it has in common with tears is simply access to all of your emotions. But like anything, you can use emotional intelligence for good or for harm. You can use it to create a better world or create one that you can control. And certainly, tears can be used to share emotion, to demonstrate empathy or vulnerability, but they can also be used to manipulate. In fact, somewhere in my research for this episode, I came upon a description of how the term crocodile tears came into being. Supposedly, the ancient Greeks told the story that crocodiles would fake tears before attacking their unsuspecting victim. I guess that makes the point. You can use your emotions, your emotional intelligence for good or for harm. It's up to you. Our listener email today is from someone who really wants to help her mother as she watches her deepen into a sense of loneliness and depression. Hi, Margaret. Dr. Margaret, sorry. My name is Joe. My question is, how do I help my mom from getting over loneliness? I'm watching her just spiral and need some help. This was a hard question to try to answer. I've often thought loneliness needed to be a diagnostic category in and of itself, I couldn't tell from this young woman's question what was causing her mother's loneliness, depression, a loss, shyness, chronic pain, or aging issues. So it's a little hard to answer because of the lack of detail. But certainly, loneliness can become a part of an older person's life as their sense of usefulness declines or they simply don't feel well enough to participate. I remember years ago, I heard a metaphor that has always stuck with me, that in families, the people who are raising children are kind of like the, the main characters in a play, and the children run around downstage and act cute and get a lot of applause. But what aging parents do, or older parents, the older generation, they become special appearance by as they take a lesser role in the play on the stage, but they play a very important role. So what this particular analogy is getting at is it's important to give the older generation the message of what their presence means, how they change the play, what they specifically offer that no one else does. Sometimes they can lose their sense of that. Now, if the loneliness is due to a loss such as death or divorce, I'd encourage participation in a grief group or recovery group of some kind. Sometimes just getting out your feelings and talking about them with people who are going through something similar can be helpful. If it's about anxiety or depression, boy, do I know that one. My own mother's anxiety was so great in the last decade of her life that she was highly isolative and was very difficult to get her to participate in anything. We just kept trying to engage her, but when she wouldn't, we had our own healing to consider as we watched the mother that we knew basically disappear. You want to make sure your mom, as you call her, is getting medical attention because there are some medical illnesses that can cause mental deterioration that might be part of your mom's isolation. And remember, sometimes her own friends might do a better job at getting her to come out than you can. So don't forget, you can ask people that she's known and loved and cared about that her own age to help. But good luck to you. It can be a tough balance trying to attend to her feelings, but your own as well, as sometimes aging can be very, very difficult. Good luck to you.
Thank you all so much for being here. Your reviews on iTunes keep me going. (laughs) So thank you so very much. It's such an honor to be here and to know that people are really listening and learning. I guess I'm practicing my emotional intelligence. Hopefully I have some. And thanks also to those of you who've left ratings or reviews about my new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. I have great news. That book is now available through an audiobook. And it's only like $7, I think, something like that. So many of you who perhaps weren't going to buy the book because it was a little too costly or you couldn't listen to it, now you can. Again, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your bookstore if you want to get the regular book. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and so many of you are actually subscribing there. And it's such an easy way to keep up with the podcast, as well as my weekly blog post, and maybe a message from me every now and then. But you'll only get the weekly newsletter, I promise. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And I have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I'd love to see you over there. And I'm having a good time on Instagram these days, too. So please catch up with me wherever you can. Thank you for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.